Uh, we're going to turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 15, uh, and I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 35 in our hearing this morning. So listen to the word of the Lord. But some men came down from Judea, were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. They declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visit, visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for, it, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. So since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled, 
and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that you, by the power of your Spirit, as every single one of us sits under the authority of your word, we pray that you would do that work in us and among us, that you, by the power of your Spirit, through our faith in Christ, would make us more like him in every way. I pray for your anointing this morning, Lord, as your word is proclaimed and your anointing over your people that they would receive your word into their hearts and that they may practice it in their lives, I pray. And ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. In this commentary on Acts, Willie Jennings says this. It says, life in cultural, economic, and social silos performed in multiple parallel lines is the inner logic of too many communities. And such configurations accepted by Christians confront the church with its deepest sin, denies the power of the living spirit. Indeed, too many pastors and church leaders have made themselves the high priests of segregationist practices. They have settled for the love of their own people instead of a love that creates a people. They have, out of sheer need to be accepted, embraced, and celebrated, refuse the holy work of the people of God to accept, embrace, and celebrate others different from themselves. The question before the apostles and the elders and brothers from Jerusalem and Antioch was no small one. It was a question whose answer would determine the nature of the church and its mission. Get this question wrong and the trajectory of the church would be off for a long time, both in terms of its identity and calling, diminishing the witness of the kingdom of God coming to this world through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Get it right and the example would be forever laid, an example the church could always look back to of who we are called to be and how we bear witness to that in this world. In short, are we going to be Jerusalem and Antioch, separate churches running on parallel lines, or are we going to be Jerusalem and Antioch united together in witness for Jesus and God's kingdom come in and through him? And that question has confronted the church since being answered all those centuries ago by these apostles and elders and brothers. And yet, remarkably, we have found ways throughout history to fail in carrying forth that answer given by these leaders at this meeting. We have found ways, remarkably, to segregate ourselves into all sorts of separate but equal groups attempting to run on parallel lines in proclaiming Christ. And we have even shown a commitment, given our own history, 
a history shared by other nations as well, by the way, of violently segregating people into separate groups through racist and elitist practices, a violence that has shaped what the church is today in many places. And in an attempt to hide our sins, we participate in revisionist histories where we attribute these separate but equal groups purely to choice, to differences in culture and the like. God, forgive us for our sins. And before we rush in our minds to fill our minds with all the necessary battles for the faith throughout church history, I'm not referring to fights over core theology. I mean, let's face it though, even among Christians who agree on core theological matters, the divisions remain myriad. And yet for all of you theologians in the house, you will be pleased to hear that the apostles and elders and brothers answered the question of unity by proclaiming a core theological truth. The truth, in fact, that should undergird all our speaking and acting for unity in the church of the living God. And it was mouthed, no less, by the apostle Peter. Peter, the one among whom the, apostle, the, 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 one among the apostles to whom it was originally proclaimed that God would save a people from among the nations, who in some ways was responsible for this whole question, and the one who had confronted, had been confronted for shrinking back from the answer he had originally given on the matter. That Peter stands up now and proclaims that core truth that is at the heart of the unity of the people of God that we are called to. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. If I were there, I would have told him, preach, Peter. Why are we saved? How, are we, how have we been set right with God? How did we enter into the kingdom of God? How did we gain interest into the family of God? Why were we baptized having the triune name of God placed upon us? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Hold up. Can you say it again for the dull of hearing or the folk in the back talking who didn't hear what you said? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christa, sola de la gloria, and all based on sola scriptura. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and all based on the scriptures alone. I didn't hear nothing about who your mama is, or who your daddy is, or how much money you got, or don't got or who you voted for in the last election, or your views on subscription to the Westminster Confession of Faith, or your gender, or the like. If you win this thing, it's because you got a whole lot of unmerited favor you didn't deserve from a God who just so happens to be the fountain of grace and mercy to a bunch of wretches. And maybe, just maybe, if we spent more time beating our breasts like the sinner in Jesus' parable, and less time puffing them out. We are here by grace, through faith, in Christ, period. 
And the grace we have received is the grace we are called to proclaim. Now, in the context of our story, what does proclaiming that grace entail? What does it require? Indeed, what will enable it to shine through to all those whom God is calling into His kingdom? I want to use James's words when he talks about the tent of David being rebuilt. I want to give you three points this morning. How do we, how do, we do this? How do we proclaim this grace? How do we enable it to shine through? By keeping the door of the tent clear of debris. By keeping the door of the tent clear of debris. It seems from the text that some present at the council who were from among a group of believing Pharisees agreed with those who had gone down to Antioch, believing that circumcision and a commitment to keep the law of Moses should be a prerequisite for Gentiles who wanted to join the church. They were in that way adding to the gospel conditions that Christ himself had not taught. Indeed, it was the Lord who spoke this invitation to those weighed down and burdened in this world. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11. No wonder Peter who may have been thinking back to this very invitation, says in verse 10, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? You see, if we're honest, some of us are experts at cluttering the doorway of salvation with spoken and unspoken requirements. And lots of times, those requirements center around our desire to maintain or secure our own personal, political, cultural space above others. We're happy for people to be saved so long as they are willing to assimilate and become like us. The Gentiles are welcome so long as they become Jews first. Our neighbors are welcome so long as they are willing to become conservatives, so long as they are willing to become progressives so long as they love this nation and no other, so long as they are willing to become hymn lovers because we ain't singing nothing else, so long as they become silent worshipers because we don't want to hear all that noise. And the list goes on. Through spoken and unspoken requirements, we lay burdens on people that we nor those before us have really been able to bear. And we forget Paul's words to Peter in Galatians 2. I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And we forget Peter's words to his brothers at the council in Acts 15, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And while we may not require these things in our preaching of the gospel, in our living out of it, we are communicating all the time that folk aren't really in the kingdom until they are look like us. 
They aren't really saved until they live, worship, pray, or vote like us. Brothers and sisters, the door of the tent, the tent of David, as the Scripture calls it, the tent that has been rebuilt through the work of David's greater son and our Lord Jesus Christ, has to be kept clear of the debris that we place in front of it. It has to be kept free of all the conditions that we sometimes add to the gospel. Where might we be saying in our day, they must? Where might we be saying they must be this or they must do that? I mentioned some of these a second ago, noting worship practices and political affiliations and national allegiances and the like. But there may be others, education and class, or our theological camp. They must be reformed to be saved, or they must be Calvinists to enter the kingdom of God. That was in my, that was in my notes, so I figured I'd say it. We have to look honestly at our they must. Look honestly at ourselves to see where we are saying this to fellow believers or to outsiders. I'm not talking about what's required of officers in denominations or our own commitments to catechizing our children in the Reformed faith. I'm not discouraging having a set of practices that guide how we disciple people in our particular context. But what do we say to those who don't come from our tradition, our culture? our people? Do we treat them like they are outside the faith until they come to our way of thinking, our way of doing church, our way of worship? Do we refuse to work with them, partner with them, fellowship with them, unless they conform to our way of doing things? If God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus was enough to declare someone as saved, and now through that a member of the kingdom of God, is it enough for us? We have to look at ourselves and honestly ask if this truth permeates our life and our witness together as the people of God. Antioch wasn't going to look like Jerusalem. They weren't going to worship like Jerusalem. They weren't going to talk like Jerusalem. They didn't have the same language as the people in Jerusalem had. They didn't look like the people in Jerusalem did. And so we have to ask ourselves, if the truth that we proclaim, that salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus, really permeates our life and witness, or are we telling people in spoken and unspoken ways, until you're like us, until you're like us, you're not really in this thing. So we got to keep the door of the tent clear of debris. But we got to keep the table of fellowship in the tent, free of offense. You got to keep the table inside of the tent free of offense. In verses 19, 20, we read this, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, on the surface, it may appear that James is favoring Jewish culture in general over Gentile culture, thus telling the Gentiles, in effect, to suppress their culture for the sake of Jewish culture. However, 
the restrictions are very specific and have largely to do with either sin in the form of sexual immorality or food restrictions. In Romans 14, Paul says something that I believe will help us in understanding the restrictions laid down by the elders in Jerusalem as it regarded social interactions between the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul, it appears, was able in his own conscience to set aside the laws related to table fellowship, but he knew this would not be the case for some of his brothers and sisters. So he writes in Romans 14, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. No longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And Paul uses the phrase there, stumbling block, which indicates that this is not an anything goes kind of concern. Rather, it's specifically in regard to things that might cause my brother or sister to stumble, that is, cause them in their own mind to violate the Word of God. The restrictions around table fellowship, remember, were put in place in the Old Covenant, and some folk were still struggling to see that in Christ, those restrictions were no longer binding. Paul's point is this, that Christians should show a genuine concern for each other's conscience, that in our fellowshipping with each other, we should be mindful of each other. I believe this is what is motivating James in the current text and laying out the concerns he communicated to the church in Antioch. The point isn't that Gentiles should abandon their own culture, but rather that they should be mindful when fellowshipping with their Jewish brothers and sisters to show concern, specifically around things that might cause them to stumble in their walk with God. Again, this isn't an anything goes concern, but a concern to help my brothers and sisters in their walk with God. The call isn't different for us, brothers and sisters. How easy is it for us to be so consumed with our individual rights that we bulldoze over the consciences of others, forgetting the words of Paul who wrote, for, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I may win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Where might this concern for another's conscience be demonstrated in our own Christian community? When I was a student at Covenant Seminary, I did an internship in a church in uh, Virginia, Norfolk. And my wife and then uh, two children <laughs> uh, went, I had to look, check with my wife to make sure it was two at that time. 
two children went with me because it was a summer internship and we were considering going there to do church planning. And while we were there, we had dinner at one of the members' house. And while we were sitting and waiting for dinner to be served, the host came to my wife and I privately and asked politely if we were okay that there would be alcohol at dinner. He was genuinely concerned about our view of drinking and very willing to not drink should it be offensive to our consciences. We were new converts to the culture of Christians who drank alcohol, even modestly, and were still working through our own views of this. Now, he didn't know that, but he was extremely kind in his approach to us. May God reward him still for that kindness. My point is to say that our brothers and sisters' consciences should matter to us. If something we do might cause someone to stumble, we must be cognizant of that and willing to do what may help protect our brothers and sisters. Again, it is not an any and everything goes kind of concern, but those things that might actually cause them to sin. And if you aren't sure, ask. Don't assume everyone can handle what you can handle. Do you hear me? Don't assume that everyone can handle what you can handle. This doesn't mean that we can't or shouldn't have dialogue with our brothers and sisters where they are holding things as sin that aren't. Paul is doing this very thing in his letters where he's speaking about conscience, noting that the eating of food to idols is not in itself sin. What it means is we don't bulldoze over our brothers and sisters' consciences for our own benefit. And this is especially important in cross-cultural church environments where you may be comfortable with something that might actually cause your brother to stumble. Amen, people of God. Keep the door of the tent free of debris. Keep the table of fellowship inside the tent free of offense. Here's what Paul says to us, or here's what we learned lastly in this text. It's by keeping the gathering inside the tent free from discouraging discourse. Keeping the gathering inside of the tent free from discouraging discourse. James noted in his letter to the Gentiles, beginning at verse 24, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. James understood that those who had come to Antioch unauthorized had done great damage through their message, that their words had created division among God's people. And so James shows a great concern together with all the apostles and elders and brothers to undo that message, to speak words of encouragement and unity to those in Antioch. But, but James doesn't just speak encouraging words himself in a letter. He sends brothers from Jerusalem to Antioch to speak those words in person. And since the division started with folk coming down from Jerusalem and speaking in an unauthorized way, the leaders now to heal the division sent official spokesmen to the church in Antioch. But then we read this in verse 32 and 33. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. 
And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. The brothers sent by the leaders in Jerusalem stayed for a while to strengthen and encourage their Gentile brothers and sisters, who in turn sent them off in peace. Ephesians 4, Paul writes this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The history of the church is in too many places littered with discouraging discourse. Too many places it is littered with discouraging discourse. From race to class to gender and the like, we have spoken things that are not in keeping with the Word of God. And at times, when called out on it, we've doubled down rather than humbly considering our speech, understanding that our words matter. Indeed, it is James himself who gives us one of the greatest chapters in the Bible on the use of our tongue. In James chapter 3, he says this in part, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth the same, from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from God, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sowed in peace by those who make peace. I wonder what would happen to our division if God's wisdom was the pursuit of our heart, if selfish ambition and jealousy, unspiritual and demonic pursuits of the heart through the power of the Spirit were laid down and the wisdom of God as it is revealed in the Scriptures was pursued. Brothers and sisters, we must commit ourselves to the power of the Spirit to pursue the wisdom that builds up, speaks what encourages, builds unity among God's people, remembering Jesus' own words. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Brothers and sisters, there's a call here to guard our speaking, to be careful that the things we are saying to each other are in keeping with God's kingdom and in keeping with what builds each other up. These folk who went down to Antioch and spoke discouraging words to the church there spoke without understanding what God was doing. They spoke out of turn. We have lots of that in the church. Lots of folks speaking who don't even fully understand what they are speaking about and sowing discord. And especially in these matters of race and cross-cultural ministry, lots of folk are talking, 
folks who aren't even doing this kind of ministry, who are all of a sudden expert at what the church should and shouldn't be doing in these things. It's no accident that God moved Peter to speak first, then Paul and Barnabas to speak next, and then James. Why? It was because Peter and Paul and Barnabas had experience with the Gentiles, experience that was then confirmed by James, who himself must have heard of his brother and our Lord's welcome of those who were not Israelites in the flesh. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We do well in cross-cultural ministry and in all ministry to heed these words of James. <laughs> Father, help us for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of this gospel of grace, for the sake of this message that it is through faith in Jesus and Him alone, through God's grace alone, that we are set free and saved. Help us to keep the door of the tent clear of the debris that we often place in front of it, the table inside the tent free of offense, and the gathering free of discouraging discourse. Brothers and sisters, Peter states it as clearly as this, but we believe we shall be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Grace through faith in Jesus and nothing else saves. We don't enter the kingdom of God in any other way. And there are no conditions attached to this proclamation. How can our life together help in assuring that this message is clearly understood by all? By keeping that tent, the door free of debris, the table free of offense, the gathering free of discouraging discourse. Let's work toward these things together that Christ may be seen, that God's grace in Him may be seen, and that through faith in Him, men and women and children might come to salvation. You want to see people saved? Then let's live in a way that the grace of God in Jesus Christ is what people see. Amen, Amen people of God. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we do need this. We do need the help of your Spirit for these things. We do indeed, Lord, want to see your salvation come into the lives of our neighbors and our family members and our coworkers, our friends. Father, we want to see the kingdom of God proclaimed in all of its power in Southeast Grand Rapids and throughout this city and state, this country, throughout this world. So we pray, Lord God, that that message of God's grace that has come in Jesus, that message that says that in Him we are saved and set free from sin and death, we pray, help us not only to receive it for ourselves, but to live it so that others may see you and come to know you as Savior and Lord. We pray and ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.